the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. On the next several podcasts, we have Dr. Rawad Hamsey. Dr. Hamsey is an assistant professor of the Department of Anesthesiology at Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist Hospital and specializes in regional anesthesia and acute pain management. Welcome back, Dr. Hamsey. Thank you. So next part, multimodal analgesia. So you first mentioned acetaminophen, and you know, this is really effective in my experience with my older patients. In fact, when they're having an osteoarthritis flare-up, if we can call it that, uh, I'll have them, you know, alternate acetaminophen and a small dose of an NSAID for a few days, and it seems to work well. I mean, what's your take on that? I honestly, I think it's a great regimen for patients who don't have any major contraindications to, of course, the NSAIDs. I do like the idea of alternating, giving them the option of taking something every three hours, alternating between the Tylenol and the NSAID. And, and we frequently see it does the job for, for most mild to moderate pain. And it, it's still a useful adjunct in patients who have moderate to severe pain. There's a lot of studies, you know, acetaminophen is an old drug. A lot of studies, a lot of data showing support for, if nothing else, the reduction in opioid requirements for surgical patients, but also on an outpatient basis, it's one of the safer medicines that you can prescribe. Uh, even patients with cirrhosis, we know acetaminophen can be toxic to the liver in high doses. Even those with cirrhosis can get reduced doses of up to three grams per day, 3,000 milligrams for short periods, ideally, but uh, you know, 3,000 milligrams is safe to use in those patients. And even our cirrhotic patients, we'll, we will prescribe acetaminophen for them. And so we, we do use it almost ubiquitously. We usually unless their weight is under 66 kilos in which we might cut it down, we usually use a thousand milligrams every six hours scheduled. So we just, we don't have them ask for it. We just give it to them automatically unless there's a contraindication. There's some studies showing anywhere from 15% of opioid reduction all the way up to 30% in reduced opioid requirements uh, for perioperative patients. So it can be quite potent. Although it's not going to be enough postoperatively alone for most patients, it will certainly help. So I think, yeah, in the outpatient setting, I really, I really do advocate for considering it for most patients as a first-line agent. Talking about NSAIDs, you talked about celecoxib and meloxicam having mm-hmm. a safer risk profile than the traditional NSAIDs and went through that somewhat. But I was hoping you might go over your perioperative course of using an NSAID like celecoxib or do you use others before or after uh, surgery? And specifically, joint arthroplasty is what I'm referring to. Sure. So just a brief background on, on the NSAIDs. They generally, as a class, they block the cyclooxygenase enzymes, of which there are two main ones. There, there are more, but two main ones we talk about with these drugs. And the COX enzymes generate inflammatory cytokines, so prostaglandins and thromboxanes among them, when they're activated by injury, tissue injury, and other tissues, for example, the stomach, the brain, the lining of all the blood vessels, COX enzymes, COX-1 specifically, is always present. It's constitutively present. And so we call that the constitutive COX pathway, the COX-1 pathway. And the COX-2 pathway tends to be inducible. So by injury, by surgery, or by inflammation, it generates uh, more COX-2 byproducts that continue the inflammatory cascade and continue the pain, sensitize the nociceptors, sensitize the pain pathways 
And so we're trying to really address pain by treating the COX-2 isoform, which is why, you know, from the traditional class of so-called non-selective NSAIDs, which target both COX-1 and 2, we've then developed, you know, COX-2 inhibitors specifically. And that includes, as you mentioned, in the U.S. market at least, includes Celecoxib or Celebrex. And we consider meloxicam relatively COX-2 selective too, so meloxicam or Mobic. Now, the side effects of NSAIDs are a big category of concern for many providers uh, because unlike acetaminophen, which is tolerated almost ubiquitously, NSAIDs can have a risk of side effects. And a lot of these have to do with where you're blocking the COX enzyme. So for example, GI upset, GI ulcers, GI bleeding from the blocking of COX-1 in the stomach lining, there is, importantly, one thing I want to really drive home, there is an increased cardiovascular risk with all NSAIDs. And so increased risk of heart attack, increased risk of stroke. Some have an increased blood pressure, although it's a very small effect. There is an increased risk of heart failure as well. And it just shows you that COX is really present throughout the whole body, every tissue. Now, in terms of which NSAIDs we choose for patients, you do have to remember as well the contraindications for NSAIDs, which in our, our institution and others like it, we generally withhold it for patients who have renal disease. So chronic kidney disease with a GFR, usually less than 60 is where we start to get a little hesitant about giving NSAIDs. But the National Kidney Foundation, I believe, sets their cutoff below 30. They should not receive NSAIDs for the GFR. So advanced kidney disease, we're talking about 3B or 4 kidney disease. But anytime you have reduced kidney function, we know the COX-1 enzyme is also present on the apron arterioles of the glomerulus as well. So that's how it reduces kidney function. And, and it does lead to death of some of the nephrons, which over time, you can see advanced kidney disease just from chronic NSAID use. But um, you know, outside of the perioperative period, we generally say naproxen is probably the least cardiovascular risk. And that's why you see naproxen pretty commonly. Usually recommend anywhere from 375 milligrams twice a day. And, and if that's well tolerated, you can titrate up to 500 milligrams twice a day. But that is, in studies at least, been shown to be the least risk of heart attack and stroke in terms of the NSAIDs. Now, it is a non-selective NSAID, so we don't generally give that to patients around the time of surgery because, again, coming back into view, the, the platelet effect of NSAIDs. So platelets, when you block the COX enzymes, at least the, the COX-1 present on the platelet, it causes platelet dysfunction to a small extent, which increases blood loss, increases bleeding. And so we usually withhold those non-selective NSAIDs for at least three days, five days, sometimes seven days, depending on which one, before surgery so that we don't have increased risk of blood loss. Now, Celebrex and meloxicam, celecoxib and, and meloxicam, don't really have any in vitro platelet inhibition. So there's no risk of, of increased blood loss in studies or in, in test tubes we've seen um, you know, in vitro studies no effective blood loss being increased by those two NSAIDs. And so we'll usually use either celecoxib or meloxicam if they have a sulfa allergy because Celebrex does have that sulfa moiety. And we'll give that to them afterwards as well. So 200 milligrams twice a day is our usual Celebrex dose. And then if they have a sulfa allergy, we'll use meloxicam or Mobic 15 milligrams once daily. One more point on the NSAID. You had talked a little bit about IV Ketorolac, and I actually have that in an IM dose. I use my walk-in clinic if somebody's, you know, really miserable and I want to give them something quick. 
Okay. I'll give them a glued injection. So do you still use that? I know at one point that was common to use in addition to some of the other meds, you know, before the patient woke up after a joint, you still use that at all? Yes. I, you know, we, we like Ketorolac quite a bit and it is a very potent non-selective NSAID. So it does have quite a robust analgesic response, sometimes equal to that of normal doses of opioids. And so I do continue to use Ketorolac on a specific case-by-case basis. I, I have to look at the, again, the safety profile of the non-selective NSAIDs, uh, increasing the, the blood loss. Usually we're not using it in total joint arthroplasty, at least at my institution, although I know some institutions do. Because of the potent non-selective COX inhibition, you do have to worry about their renal function um, over time. So it's, it's actually got a warning. You're not supposed to use it for more than five days at a time for that renal risk. And also it has one of the strongest risks for cardiovascular events. So heart attack, stroke, back to that COX-1 inhibition in the endothelial lining of, of blood vessels. That being said, it is extremely potent and has a, a quite a bit of analgesia associated with it. And so for post-traumatic patients, for example, motor vehicle accidents or gunshot wounds or people in the ICU after traumatic falls or other surgeries where blood loss is no longer a concern, as long as they don't have advanced renal disease, as long as they don't have a history of heart attack or stroke or, or severe risk factors for them, we do use Ketorolac for three days at a time, typically is, is what we limit it to. And it does have quite a bit of opioid sparing analgesia associated with it. For a walk-in clinic, I think it's great. Um, again, just considering the, the contraindications of advanced renal disease or um, advanced cardiovascular disease, where they might be at an increased risk for heart attack or stroke, then I, th- I think it's a really powerful tool, especially if you're trying to avoid opioids. Now, something that I don't use frequently, actually, I hardly ever prescribe this, but gabapentinoids. And, you know, it seems like every patient that I get, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it seems like the primary cares love gabapentin. Somebody has this subjective sciatic symptoms when they get to me, they're already on gabapentin. And you talked about the risk of gabapentin and pregabalin, and I was hoping you might go over some of that and how it fits into pain treatment. I do think you you continue to see gabapentin commonly. It, it maybe is a little bit less common than you used to, to see about five years ago, six years ago. It's because it's a relatively safe medication. You know, there's some side effects of sedation, of, of dizziness you have to watch for, especially in the elderly, especially with those with reduced renal clearance, but it is a relatively safe medication and, and it is indicated for the treatment of neuropathic pain. And so I think when, when providers try and come up with a treatment plan for back pain, especially, we know that opioids aren't indicated for the treatment of chronic back pain. They don't respond with an improved quality of life. When you prescribe patients opioids over time, they're not re- shown to reduce either patient satisfaction or in the long run, at least, patient uh, pain scores. And so when we try to, to put that in the context of, well, what am I going to give this patient to help with their pain? Given that a lot of back pain can be neuropathic, it is associated with compression of spinal nerves and spinal nerve roots. I think gabapentin became a go-to, uh, if you will, a, a first-line agent for a lot of people treating back pain because it is one of the more or less safer medications to try when you compare it to other things like opioids or chronic NSAIDs in certain patient populations. I will say the anesthesiology field loved gabapentin, gabapentinoids, including pregabalin, 
up until about 2020, we had a, a huge meta-analysis published in our main journal, Anesthesiology. And it, it seemed to change our practice a little bit. Before, we were pretty liberal with gabapentinoids. Almost every joint patient got pregabalin, for example. But this study, it looked at about 24,000 patients. It was something like 280 trials. And they pooled all surgical patients, not just total joints, but other surgeries too. Among patients who received gabapentinoids, either gabapentin or pregabalin or placebo, and it looked at pain, it looked at side effects. Um, They did show a statistically significant signal for decreased pain, but it was only about 10 points on a 100-point scale, so like a 1 out of 10 on the pain scale, limited to the first day or so. And it was significant. Some studies, it was larger. Some, it was about that. But they showed an increased risk of dizziness and visual disturbance and pretty significant risk, um, which, as we know, increases the risk of falls. And so gabapentinoids have been implicated in the increased risk of, of falling after surgery or just as, a, as an outpatient treatment, especially in the elderly. And in patients who are presenting for total joint arthroplasty, we know they're already at increased fall risk. And so we as a practice, we as a field, actually, anesthesiology, I think a lot of us considered whether or not we ought to be including gabapentinoids as a ubiquitous treatment. Uh, it did certainly change our practice to read that, that paper. I want to highlight just one more paper that later in the year, later in 2020, came out from a Journal of Arthroplasty, where they looked at about 13 studies. And they, again, they compared gabapentin uh, or pregabalin for specifically now patients undergoing total joint arthroplasty. And they were able to show both reduced pain scores and reduced opioid consumption, both in the hospital and after discharge with pregabalin or Lyrica. The association wasn't as strong for gabapentin, but they were able to show at least reduced pain, uh, but no, no opioid changes there. So pregabalin, it does seem to be, of the two gabapentinoids commonly in use, it does seem to be more titratable. It has a little bit of a wider index uh, therapeutic index. It's not quite as dangerous as titrating gabapentin, which you have to do slowly. It doesn't take weeks to work like gabapentin. I will say, if I had to choose between the two, we definitely prefer pregabalin or Lyrica. And I still do use it in practice. We still, we just are a little bit more selective with it. So when we are treating patients who have known neuropathic pain, whether it's associated with their arthritis or whether it's associated with back pain or what have you, we usually will include pregabalin, again, unless their renal function's very low, in which case we still might include it, but at a lower dose. Younger patients especially seem to tolerate it quite well, and it does seem to have an opioid sparing effect. Amputations are another category where we know they're going to have neuropathic pain, phantom pain, and gabapentinoids are absolutely indicated first line for the prevention of that or the lower lower risk of, of those symptoms. So amputations, we try to always include it, but for total joints, yeah, we're selecting here and there depending on the patient. Great information. Okay. So another drug, antidepressants, and you specifically went over SNRIs and tricyclics, and I was hoping you might uh, give our listeners a little bit of information on how you might use those in chronic pain management and acute pain management. Sure. If, If you use them in acute pain management. We definitely do. So both tricyclics and SNRIs both have the effect of preventing reuptake of both serotonin and norepinephrine. And so that's generally the basis of their treatment of psychiatric conditions, such as depression. As we know, serotonin is involved ubiquitously in the brain, but also it plays a role in the descending pathways we alluded to earlier that modulate the pain receptors, modulate the firing of those nociceptive pathways. And so changing the serotonin uptake 
does seem to have a benefit through that pathway, aside from mood, aside from depression, independent of mood change when you initiate SNRIs or TCAs, it's been shown to improve pain. And then norepinephrine is probably even more important as it it tends to activate the alpha-2 receptors in the spinal cord. So we use alpha-2 agonists such as dexmedetomidine or Presidex or the older drug clonidine, for example. We use those drugs anyways for analgesia, and we know they have direct analgesia associated with that activation of the alpha-2 adrenergic receptors. And so by inhibiting the reuptake of the norepinephrine, increasing the norepinephrine in the spinal cord, you can inhibit some of those transduction of the pain signals coming from the periphery. So the afferent signals coming in from the affected joint, the surgical area, for example. It does seem to be more predominant on norepinephrine, more importantly than serotonin, but both do have an effect. But that's that seems to be the basis on why SSRIs, of so selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, don't have quite a robust effect for analgesia as SNRIs and TCAs. But it's it's been really impressive looking at the literature for Cymbalta or duloxetine specifically as the SNRI that seems to have the, the best data for treatment of chronic pain, but also even acute pain. Um, even within a day or two of treatment, it seems to reduce the severity of pain um, in the post-operative period. A lot of studies have been shown to, to have an impact on pain reduction of opioid use, more so than the other SNRI, venlafaxine or Effexor. So it seems like duloxetine or Cymbalta is more consistently uh, opioid sparing if you compare the two. And then older TCAs, you know, it's a very old drug class, can be quite sedating. But again, you're going to have that serotonin and norepinephrine uh, reuptake inhibition. Amitriptyline is the one we use commonly. We normally only dose it at night, and it doesn't seem to act as quickly as duloxetine. It's quite sedating, which is why we, we give it to patients at night. But amitriptyline, more than nortriptyline, has robust data in, in the literature, um, specifically for neuropathic pain. But as we know, the pain pathways transduced by, by the afferent signals are impacted by both of those signaling molecules. So we do prefer to use duloxetine over amitriptyline, but it's not yet to the point where every patient's getting it. Okay, that's great information. Dr. Hamzik, thank you for being on today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having me. Please tune in next week for more on multimodal analgesia in the orthopedic patient. Please follow the Physician Assistance in Orthopedic Surgery on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast. If this has been helpful, please take a moment to leave a review. I'm excited to tell our audience that Denver registration is now open for our 22nd annual meeting. This is our annual fall meeting and will be August 22nd through the 26th at the Sheridan Denver Downtown Hotel. Come and join us for some CME and get away for a little while in the Mile High City. Stop by the desk and say hello. I look forward to seeing you there.